Good morning. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to John 13. Next Sunday, I'm going to start strapping money underneath the center seats. And if you sit there, you might find some money or something just trying to get a few people in front of me here. Like, y'all like the sides for some reason. I could try to make a quick exit or something. John 13. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 30 this week. The story, our story, the Lord's story, turns and points us toward tragedy. Two words don't go together, and yet in this life they do. Trust and tragedy. It doesn't fit. It's, it's like eating a grits and peanut butter sandwich, right? Just imagine that. It just don't go together, right? Not going to taste good. The texture's just going to trust and tragedy. Or you could say this, trust and betrayal. Some things are just not meant to go together, but yet here we are. We oftentimes sing about the Lord and the gospel, and yet we don't know how to do anything with it in our life. Live long enough, you will understand the tragedy of betrayal, of, of trusting someone and having that trust betrayed, unfaithfulness in marriage, abuse in the church or in the home. These things are the hardest to overcome because you are the closest to the person who betrays you. You ever been eating or talking to a longtime friend and there's just something there that wasn't there the last time you met with them? A little bit of maybe criticalness or sarcasm or just some tension, some distance. The next thing you know, they won't call you back. Gone. And you're left going, what's wrong with me? <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with me? I, I, what did I It's painful. Jesus knows what it means to be betrayed. And even in that, there's comfort. So I want us to see this today, and then we're going to read our passage. Jesus' tragic betrayal fulfills Scripture as it gives faith-filled confidence for those who trust Him. So stand with me. We're going to read verses 21 to 30 this morning. I just want you to get the story. Remember, Jesus is still at supper with His disciples. Remember, He has washed their feet. He has given them a lesson. Verse 21, After these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit. And testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave 
And to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that we may should give something to the poor. So after the receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Let's pray. And so, Lord, God and our Father, we gathered ourselves together. In the midst, every one of us mostly has a season or a storm or a pain, or a sorrow, or a thing that we cannot fix, and we would long to, we have gathered ourselves together, as you have told us to, despite how we feel, to hear from your word, because our only hope is in you. So whether they are watching online today, or whether they are here, comfort your people. Comfort your people by understanding that our Lord, Jesus Christ, came. And he lived a life. But his sorrow, and his pain, and yes, Lord, even today, his betrayal was not for nothing. Comfort us through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One commentator expressed last week and this week's message this way. Last week was love expressed, and this week is love exchanged. I love that. I thought that was very helpful for me as I studied it. Jesus, the humble servant, was last week. Him getting up from the table, taking on the form of a slave, putting on an apron, washing their feet, teaching them of what was coming, that he was going to wash their sins once and for all. Teaching them that this was the way that they would live their life. Then sitting back down, now we see that this love that was given will be exchanged. We had a hint of that last week. Judas, the greedy betrayer, has entered the scene. You remember verse 11? Back up there where he looked at the Peter specifically, but all the disciples, and said, you are clean, but not all of you are clean. John said he's thinking about Judas. To Judas now we turn. And so there's three parts to the message today. First is Jesus' tragic betrayal. Connected to that is that this betrayal will fulfill Scripture. And that it's purposeful. It gives faith-filled confidence for those who believe, for those who trust Him. So let's look at the first two together. Jesus' tragic betrayal fulfills Scripture. So let's then take them and unpack them. You have your two sub-points. Jesus' betrayal is tragic. It's tragic. A tragedy, if you look it up, you know, I can say this now, people would actually do it on their phones. A tragedy describes a situation that is both serious and, as one said, deplorable, unbearable, 
nearly unfathomable, and, and it often involves death. Fits really well with Jesus' story because it is serious, it is deplorable, and it will end up in death. You see, as we've said before, Judas was a trusted person of position among the disciples. And through all of this, you'll see they didn't have a clue. You don't pick the treasure of your church to be shady, right? He's got to be somebody that you trust completely, above reproach. That's who they would have said. He said, pick somebody in, your, in the disciples that was the most trusted. The disciples would have said Judas, who's trusted. If you look at verse 26, he was reclining close to Jesus. Where they sat at the table in that day was purposeful. John on the right. Most people think Judas was probably on the left side of Jesus. He was close. Close enough to hand him the bread. He shared his table. Remember, the Jewish people were not individual Americans. They were communal people. Children didn't move away from the home. They built a house on top of their parents. They needed each other. They were communal people. Who you shared the table with was important. They shared their lives with him. They shared his table with him. He broke bread with him. Don't miss this. Jesus' tragedy does not mean he is out of control. But listen, neither does the fact that Jesus knows this make it lack of a tragedy. You see it in verse 21. Notice that Jesus was troubled. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. In the core of who he was, he was troubled. And he said, one of you will betray me. This word troubled, we have heard already. The word troubled was Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus with people who did not believe. And he saw the effects of unbelief and of sin and of death. He was troubled. When he thought about the cross, about his father turning his back on him, having to bear the wrath of God, he was troubled. And now we see when he thinks about his friend, his disciple Judas, about to betray him. We get this word in the Greek. It is intense emotion. He was troubled. This hurt. Jesus loved him and he betrayed him. But Judas was not chosen. Now there again, what I believe is not important. But look what the text says. Verse 17 to 18 now. If you know these things, blessed are you to do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. The scripture will be fulfilled. He's saying, one of you is not. One of you is not chosen. I know whom I have chosen. He's making clear there is now a distinction among the disciples. And one of them was standing outside the circle. His name was Judas. Turn with me to Daniel for a minute. You see, the Lord has books. Not literal books. (laughs) He has books. 
people in those books. There's all kinds of things in those books. There's more than one book. That's not a message for today. I just want you to see this. Daniel 7, verse 9. Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Revelation speaks of these books. Here's the point. Judas's name is not in the book. Look at John 6. Now flip back to John. Look at verse 6. He's already said this about Judas. John 6 verse 70. Jesus replied to them, Did I not choose the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. He was chosen among the twelve, but he was not chosen among the redeemed. This announcement that there was a betrayer among them caused a stir, to say the least. Just listen to Luke's parallel account. Luke twenty-two twenty-one. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, and it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them was it going to be? And so this called a stir. This, all of a sudden, the meal was disturbed, and, and the disciples were saying, not me, it must be you. Dude, are you serious? Is that you? No, it's not me. Is it you? But you see, what we get in the story, it's important to know in the, the men, the disciples as people. Jesus and John were especially tight. He was sitting at his right hand. And so Peter, knowing this, you know, made that mouth notion of maybe everybody's talking. And Peter said, hey, John, you ask him. I know who it is. He'll tell you. And so he leans over there and said, Who is it? Notice, this is in, your, in our small group. Why did John never identify himself? He always just called the one whom Jesus loved. We'll leave that for small group. Jesus, though, having been asked, Unveils the betrayer in verses 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. It's a sobering verse 27, just absolutely sobering. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, whatever you're going to do, go do it quickly. Satan entered because Judas opened the door. 
Sin, you see, should sober us. It, it should scare the you-know-what out of us. Sin opens a door. Greed opens a door. Pride opens a door. Eastern meditation opens a door. Doing things that put your mind in neutral is dangerous for a Christian. It opens the windows of your temple. Immorality opens a door. Abusing medications opens the windows. Christians fill our minds. We never empty them. You do not need to empty your mind to relax. That's a lie the world tells us. Can I ask you something? What was the first lie that Satan whispered to Judas? Brother, following Jesus is not working out very good for you. He's not meeting your needs. You need to change churches. Right? This is not working out. You see, this is important. Satan always whispers what our fallen nature longs to hear. Satan always whispers what our fallen nature longs to hear. We'll talk more about that at small group as well. There were only two people at the table that understood what was happening. Jesus and Judas. See, something happened eternally at that point when Jesus handed him the morsel, and he, if you look at the text, received it. Two people understood it. I love verse 30, it's sobering. He said, and it was night. It's John's point, right, to the whole book. Light and darkness. Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And here he is. The illustration for where John began the book. Now he says, here's your illustration. Dark, dark heart, unredeemed heart. Listening to the lies of Satan, believing them. Why go through all of this if Jesus knew it was going to happen anyway? Talk about that at small group too. But let's look at this. First reason, Jesus' betrayal fulfills Scripture. Now, back up in the text of verse 18, because John tells us at the beginning, even before he tells us about this story, I'm not speaking to all of you, verse 18. I know who I'm chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And so hold your place and turn with me to Psalm 41. Psalm 41. This is where he quotes this from. This story is about David. About David being betrayed. This is what Jesus quotes. This is what Jesus said. This is not only about David. This is prophesying about me. But listen to what goes on in David's life. Let's start like verse 4. Psalms 41 verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when no one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his 
heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. You see, his own son turned against him. And he turned against him first with his mouth. Took the kingdom from him. Let's keep reading. Interesting before we pick up in verse 7. Notice first, even though he was being sinned against, the first thing he did is confess his own sin. And second, he takes his issue to God. Verse 7. All who hate me whispered together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Verse 8. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. God's just punishing you. Verse 9. This is the This is the passage Jesus quotes. Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is in the Lord's mind. This is, he's saying, this happened in David's life, but it was pointing to something greater than David. See, not only did Absalom... His own son betray him. Ahithophel did too. He was his trusted counselor. He used to eat at his table. But yet he, he betrayed him and went and gave counsel to Absalom. And when Absalom didn't heed his counsel, do you know what Ahithophel did? He went out and hanged himself. Just like Judas. You see, but Jesus is not a helpless victim. He was betrayed. Jesus is not cursed. He is not some unlucky victim. What is happening to him has a purpose. And he said, I'm going to tell you this now. Telling you that David pointed to me. I'm going to tell you now that this is about to happen. So on the backside of this thing, you might know and you might believe. Even the treachery of Judas can only serve God's redemptive purposes of the very mission that he sent Jesus to do. It did not undermine any of it. It only fulfilled it. Jesus' betrayal will bring faith-filled confidence. Can you see that? Can you feel that even now? But it only brings it for those who trust him. You see, God's eternal purposes is only advanced though Satan tried to defeat him and though Judas bought into it. So why did this betrayal happen? Here, verse 19. That we might trust him as our Messiah. That's why it happened. That's why it happened. I am telling you this now before it takes place, verse 19. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Another one of those I am statements. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. You know this. You don't have to turn there if you know it. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. If Jesus was saying this, what would he say to us today? Without faith, it is impossible to please me. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that I am. And that I reward those who seek me. 
Jesus is saying all of this happened, including this tragic betrayal, so that my people might believe that I am the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. I am the promised Messiah. There is no other. So this is just true, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's true. Jesus chose Judas because Judas' betrayal was necessary to demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah. So he did. Jesus' betrayal happened, secondly, that the object of our faith might be Christ alone. You see, faith must have an object. And faith, I would say, always has an object. If you say you have faith and you do not have an object of that faith, it is not faith. Everybody has faith. The atheists have faith. The Muslims have faith. The Mormons have faith. It is the object of our faith that is the issue. And Jesus was betrayed, just as Scripture said, so that we may have no doubt that the object of our faith is not what Jesus gives us. It is Jesus. It is not the healing. It is not the job or lack of a job. It is Him. He is the object, you see. And when we begin to raise people in our life, even good people, to God-like status and put our eyes on them, when they fall, we will fall. They are not the object of our faith. Not the fallen pastors, not the friends who betray us, not the family members who walk away. They're not the object of our faith. That doesn't mean we don't love them. It means we don't put our trust in them. Our trust is in the Lord because He has never failed us and because He proved it in His life, death, and resurrection. When we tell our friends and our families and our co-workers, when we call on them, we're not calling them merely to faith. We're calling them to faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why Judas betrayed Him, so that we might believe and so that the object of our faith may be no one else save Christ alone. Amen. Psalms 40, verse 16, just so you know, it's not a New Testament thing. This was God's people thing. Always has been. Psalms 40, verse 16, says this. Promise, you see. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let me read that again. That was good. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. You see the object of our faith? The object of our seeking is not to be accepted. It is not to be liked. It is not to elevate men or women or leaders or presidents. It is to seek Him. The promise is you seek Him, He'll satisfy you with Him. Jesus' betrayal happened so that we might know that Jesus is the Messiah, so that He may be the object of our faith. And it happened. Jesus' betrayal happened that we might receive God the Father. I don't know anything else that Jesus would say today that He can give you greater than His own Father. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. It's a, it's a package deal. <laughs> you get Jesus, you get the Father. To have the Father, you have the Son. This is critically important this morning. I can get on a plane, and we did, and I can fly to the DRC, the Congo, and I can see the exact same problems we have. A complete absence of fatherness. Where, oh, where are all the fathers? And then we hear about abusive families, that even those who have a father got used as a punching bag by someone who they supposedly trusted. And maybe you had a really good father. But you see, this father, this father, the one that Jesus died, the one that Jesus was betrayed to bring us to, is not like your earthly father. Every father or no father in all. Point by way of comparison or contrast. And so today, if you're watching online and you had a miserable father, stop saying God is like that. He's not. You can only know God by this. Your father or lack of father served only as a contrast for what the true father is like. And even our good fathers are imperfect fathers. If the the good father did not try to make himself God in his children's life. He simply points to the one who is the Father. And when I die, and when you die, and all of us will one day, what we want to leave is a legacy that our children know who the good Father is. Not me. Forget me, bury me, don't go to my grave, it's fine. We'll see each other one day. But please remember that our Father is a good Father. Can I introduce you to Him this morning? Turn with me to Deuteronomy. You need to see this. This is an important understanding of who our Abba is. Deuteronomy 32. Look at verse 39. You got it? Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. Now look at me for a minute. That's your Father if you're in faith in Jesus Christ. He's no weak-willed daddy who won't stand up for his kids. He's a sovereign God that controls the universe. And through faith in Jesus Christ, he's your father and he's mine. It's good news. Tell me of the love of God and I will love you for it. But oh, please show me this one. Because you're going to need this in the storms of your life. There's no God besides him. So what? So what? This is not in your notes. Are you a whiny Christian or a confident one? I mean, has the last year made you more confident or more whiny? (laughs) I'll have my mask with me. 
Yeah, if I had a dollar every time I whined about that thing, right? Or has this trial and the many other ones that we're all going through made you a more confident Christian? You see, we can believe the lie that's being whispered into our ear. You're just a victim. We, we buy into the lie to be victimized so that we can be defeated. We buy into the lie of enslavement so that we can be muzzled. We are entrapped in order to be overwhelmed. Satan loves to do that. Yes, he loves to do it, Christians, even to you. He whispers into the window of your very soul. Can I remind us this morning? Good question to ask yourself. Paul asked it. Do you remember? Question, old child of God. Who will lay anything at the feet of God's elect? Who can lay anything at the feet of whom God has chosen? Who can lay anything at the feet of the one who Christ has declared righteous? The answer, nobody. Nobody. That does not make me whiny. That should make me confident. There is only one who lived, died, and rose again. And he has declared us to be righteous, forgiven, and his very own family. So here's my question for us today. Are you allowing tragedy to define you? Live long enough. You can replace tragedy if you would like. You could put suffering. Put losses. Are you allowing it to define you? So turn with me. I want to show you how Christians fight these things this morning. And if, listen, from here on out to the end of the message, if you were in my office looking for counseling, this is exactly what I'd get you to do week after week after week after week. Psalm 73. I want you to find it, and then I want... Let's think these things. We're going to love God with our minds and our hearts today by way of application. Whatever you put in that blank of tragedy, right? Don't put something general, brothers and sisters. Lay something specific as we come to God before Him right now. Put it into blank. And here's the truth. You cannot grieve nor heal by ignoring it or denying it. You can't move to healing. You can't walk into freedom Christ died to give you by acting like it did not happen. By covering up with years and covering it up with work and covering it up with whatever we cover it up with. We cannot move to healing by ignoring it, by denying it. You see... Here's what I want you to see. The psalmist wrote songs about his tragedies. There's, there's a power in that just, just by pondering that. They did not, he did not ignore it. He did not act like his own son did not betray him. He didn't act like the people of God were always being come against. He didn't. They wrote songs about it. He sing about it on Sundays, but notice 
how the song is written. So Psalm 73, not David. I think Asaph wrote this, right? Yeah, Asaph wrote this. First principle I want you to see. If we are not going to let tragedy define us, we need to be honest with God and ourselves. And if I could add into others, <laughs> but let's start here. Be honest with God, God and ourselves. Verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, listen to what he says. This is a song. They would sing this on their Lord's Day, right? On their worship time. But as for me, my feet all had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw prosperity of the wicked, well, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not troubled as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he just goes on and on, brothers and sisters. Look all the way down to verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is a song. He didn't deny that it was happening. He honestly went before his God with his issue. It's a problem, God. I don't get it. I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why these wicked people seem to just get more prosperous and blessed. And here I am suffering, trying to be faithful. I don't get it, God. Look at verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I, trying to figure out and make sense of what we're going through in our life is wearisome sometimes. Amen? That's what he's saying. It's wearisome. Until. Until. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And so... Second principle, we must abide in His presence. And we must think. We must abide in His presence and think. Long term, not short term. This is what tragedy and trauma does to us. It puts us in survival mode. Here's what he's saying. And oh, I wish we could be this honest in church, don't you? I almost walked away this week, God. I'm almost done. I'm tired of it. Tired of fighting. Tired of working. Tired of trying. It's hard, God. I'm I'm about ready to walk away. But I got up this morning and I gathered myself into your presence. And I have brought it all. I've brought my the good and the bad. That that I hold on to and that that I don't understand, I brought it all and I'm going to abide in your presence. You missed this point this morning. And you will accept the lie that Satan is whispering in your ear this morning. He whispers it into the windows of your soul. And here's sometimes what he says. I can't whisper all the lies. He's been whispering them for thousands of years. 
You are depression. You are your addiction. You are a victim. You are what you struggle with. But here's what he says. Gather yourself into his presence so that he can remind you first, first and foremost, who he is. You will never go to a secular therapist and hear that. We always got to believe that we're not a victim because we need to know who we are. No, that will give you no healing. We need to understand who he is. We need to understand our father. He decides to go to worship despite how he felt. Look at verse 17. The light comes on in God's presence. The light comes on as he dwells under the Almighty, as he, as he ponders him. And here's what he realized. Huh. So I got enemies. They're always after me. But I'm one of God's children. So that makes them God's enemies. Right? <laughs> that makes them God's enemies. Right? I feel better already. They're not my enemies. They're, they are, but they're really God's. This thing that I am carrying, I carry it in there with God. And all of a sudden, you see, here's the truth. He compares his situation to God, not himself. He compares his situation to God, not others. And what he gets is a God-sized vision for his own life. Notice in verse 20, he confesses his ignorance. When the light comes on, <laughs> when he begins to see his God, verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Listen, now he comes back to where he started. The first 15 verses, he was just sort of whining before the Lord. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You see, he's, now he's come to a point of repentance. Now he sees God. Now he's moved from agony to all. From a real life tragedy to our life defining God. It's not done. Now he just commences to making some progress in his Christian life. Remember, this is a song. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I love that. Nevertheless, no matter what, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. No matter what happens, no matter what this situation happens in my life, I am continually with you, and you will guide me directly into the presence of the Almighty. No absence. You guide me, and you will receive me. But here's the truth. I'll never live a moment without you again. Stop abiding in your yesterday. And start abiding in the sovereign goodness of the Almighty. What does that look like? It looks like verse 24. 
You start trusting in the counsel of God's word to tell you who you are and tell you how you must live, and then you live it. There's nobody else in your life, God, except God. There's nobody else that can tell you who you are except God. There is no one who can tell us how we must live save the counsel of God's word. There's no one who will not betray you. No one you can trust more than the one who died for you. Here's good news. Look at verse 26. Well, I'm too weak to hold on to you. I can trust that my Lord will hold on to me. My flesh and my heart might fail. But the Lord is the, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Yes, sometimes it's not that I just might fail. Sometimes I fail. <laughs> we might drink it. We might smoke it. We might believe it. We might quit it. The Lord is our strength and our portion. When we cannot hold on to Him, He holds on to us. Tragedy may be your story, but it does not define you, nor does it have the right to have the last word in your life. Are you trusting God to make all things right? This is where He ends. You see, this is the end of our story, yours and mine. Is the end of this song. For behold, those who are far, verse 27, from those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Amen. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. You see, this is our story. Jesus took his own tragedy and turned it for our victory and his Father's glory. It is our story from beginning to end that the Lord will make all things right. And so here's what I'm asking you to do today. There is something that you need to do. and Maybe you need something physical. I'm just picking this up because I'm a visual kind of guy. Whatever that is, that you put in that blank early. There is, there is, you need to understand that there is one person that you need to give that to today. It's not your friend, it's not your spouse, it is the Lord. Give it to Him. Refuse to carry it. He will carry it for you. Sometimes He'll carry it with us. So, brothers and sisters, here's what I'm going to call us to do now. Let us stand and sing of our Father's love. And let us come to the tables and remember the one who brought us to his own Father by giving his own life. Let's pray with me. Lord, we thank you. we think about your triunity God as our father Jesus as our brother the spirit as our abiding comforter
Renew your people today. May those who listen even online be more committed to gather with the redeemed. For there is strength among God's people as we gather to sing of you. And so write our thinking, God. Put our suffering in the right place in accordance with your goodness and your sovereignty and your holiness. Remind your children of who they are because of the work of your son. Lord, may we remember these things as we come to the table. As we take the bread in our mouths and remember that his body was crushed for us. And we also remember we are allowed to sit at the table. So we're family. Thank you for a good father. Who will hold us fast till we see him face to face. Receive our worship now. In Jesus name. Amen. Mm-hmm.